Good morning and welcome to Bachelor Creek. Excited to be with you today. First Peter chapter 2 is where we're going to be in a moment. So if you have your Bibles, turn there and uh, we'll be in that text in a moment. There were two fathers and they each had teenage daughters. The words of the two fathers were very similar. They said the same kinds of things to their daughter, but their actions could not have been more different. Both fathers had told their daughters that they can achieve whatever they want in life, whatever you commit yourself to. If you dream it, you can do it. There's nothing you can't do in life. The first father would occasionally ask his daughter, have you applied to any colleges? Make sure you do your research. But he never really offered more than that. The second father, he was really invested in helping his daughter discover her passion. When she expressed an interest in animals, he made sure that she got involved in 4-H. He helped her get a spot volunteering with the local veterinarian. When it came time to visit colleges, his daughter asked him if he would join her on these trips. And after they had finished visiting the universities, they sat down and talked through the pros and cons of each school. Now you tell me, which father do you think believed that his daughter could do whatever she wanted? Both fathers told their daughters about the importance of prayer, that spending time with God was vital to their spiritual life. But each evening, the first father would send his daughter to bed while he stayed and watched TV. As she walked up the stairs, he'd say, don't forget to pray. The second father, he would walk with his daughter upstairs and he would sit on the end of her bed and He would talk to her about her day and what was causing her stress and anxiety and what she wanted prayer for. They would talk about how God had answered prayers. They talked about other people and situations that they could be lifting up in prayer, and they would end their time together each evening by praying together, praising God, thanking Him for His blessings, and lifting up requests. Now, you tell me, which father believed in the importance of prayer? Both of these fathers had demanding jobs that required long hours. The time away from home created distance between them and their daughters. And the daughters began to express hurt that their dad wasn't around very much. The fathers would miss activities and events, and it all culminated when they missed the biggest volleyball match of the year. This led to strained relationships and arguments around the house. Both fathers told their daughter, I'm sorry. But the first father continued to do the same thing over and over, each time saying, I'm sorry, it won't happen again. The second father said, I'm sorry, but he realized that something needed to change. So he spent time actively making amends through his actions, listening, showing empathy, consistently being present. And through these actions, the hurt was healed and the relationship was mended. Now you tell me, which apology do you think was sincere? The answer is obvious. We know that talk is cheap. Actions matter. As we've gone through this series, Gospel Fluency, we have looked and tried to understand what is the gospel. What's it look like to become fluent in the gospel so that we can see through the lens of the gospel and speak the truth of Jesus into the stuff of everyday life? We've seen how the gospel changes our hearts. 
The gospel changes our minds in the way that we think. And the gospel also changes the way that we act. We display the gospel through our actions. We've looked at how there are many people who believe lesser stories. For a lot of people, the dominant story of their life is is naturalism or materialism. But the problem with any lesser story is that they leave us wanting. They fail to adequately address the biggest and deepest questions of life. But the gospel is a better story, and Jesus is a better Savior. The story of God includes four parts, creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Without Jesus, we are dead in our sins. We experience the effects of the fall every single day. There are frustrations that we have in life. We have this nagging sense that things are as they should be. And so God sent Jesus to forgive us of our sins. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, He makes us alive. He redeems us from the penalty of our sin. And by doing so, He gives us new life and a new identity. And in the New Testament letter of 1 Peter, chapter 2, Peter reminds us of this new identity that we've been given by our better hero, Jesus. We're going to read this together, 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 9. Would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. In this passage, Peter teaches us that our identity in Christ impacts our actions, enables holy living, and enhances our witness. Our identity in Christ impacts the way that we act, It enables us to live holy and distinct lives, and it enhances our witness to a watching world. First, I want you to notice Peter tells us about our new identity, our new identity. And Peter here follows the pattern of Paul and the other New Testament writers. Before he ever tells his audience what to do, he reminds them of who they are. Again, verse 9 says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. This is who you are. He says you are a chosen people. Now, this isn't because of our own merit. It's not because we've done anything to deserve it. It is all because of God's grace and God's purpose. We are selected to be His representatives on earth. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5 that we are Christ's ambassadors. 
We are a royal priesthood. In the Old Testament, it was only the priests, the Levites, who had access to God. But now through Jesus Christ, we have direct access to God the Father. We are a royal priesthood, serving as intermediaries between God and humanity. God makes his appeal through us. We are a holy nation. We are called to be holy, set apart from the world and set apart for God's purposes. And our lives should reflect his holiness. Our lives should stand out in a world that is often marked by moral relativism and immorality and indifference. We are God's special possession. As followers of Jesus, we belong to God. Our identity is found in Him. And that identity should shape our behavior and should shape our actions. We have been called out of darkness. We have been called out of darkness and into His marvelous light which means that our lives should contrast the darkness of the world. Our lives should shine as beacons of hope. As Jesus taught us in the Sermon on the Mount, we are to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. We are to let our light shine before others, like a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. And if you are a follower of Jesus, I'm telling you, this is who you are. Right now, this is who you are. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. You have been called out of darkness. This is who you are. But you don't always feel that way, do you? You don't always feel like royalty, right? My guess is you don't always feel holy. There are times you don't feel like you're God's special possession. But this is who God says you are. And there are moments in your life where you have to choose to believe what's true even when you don't feel it. You have to trust that what God says is true and right. Believe the truth and the feelings will follow. And what I want you to see today is that our identity, it overflows into our actions. Who you are determines what you do. Who you are determines what you do. And that order makes all the difference. See, you don't act like Jesus in order to belong to Jesus. No, you belong to Jesus, and then you are able to act like Jesus. Belonging precedes behavior. Years ago, the website of the Chicago Bears football team presented a series of videos that followed the team's rookies from their first arrival at training camp on through the preseason. And there was one video that showed part of Coach Lovey Smith's first orientation talk with the rookie class. Now, of course, the biggest thing on each rookie's mind is whether or not they're going to make the team. And rookies know that the team begins with 80 players who come into camp. And after a few weeks, the coaches cut the the team down to 65 players. And then, before the season actually begins, NFL teams are required to trim the roster down to 53 active players. So of the 19 rookies that were invited to the Bears training camp camp that year, the team would likely keep only around seven. And Lovey Smith knew that. And so he addressed the rookies' concerns in his talk to that year's class. And his challenge to the team was, make us put you on the team. Make us put you on the team. 
In other words, play so well in practice that the coaches couldn't imagine cutting you. Make us put you on the team. Take the decision out of the coach's hand. Let your performance make the decision for us, right? And you know, there are a lot of religions and there are a lot of people in the world who think that God makes the same sort of speech about who will get into heaven. Do you want to make the team? Do you want eternal life? Make me put you on the team. Live such a good life. Do so many good deeds that I could not even imagine rejecting you. Take the decision out of my hand. You see, church, the counterintuitive truth is that God works on a completely different basis than football coaches do. People who think that they can perform so well that they can make God add them to heaven's roster because they're so deserving of it, they're the ones that will be rejected. This is the idea of salvation by works. It's the opposite of salvation by grace. God saves us by his grace and his grace alone. It is through faith in Jesus Christ. So there are some of you who need to stop trying to earn an identity that's already been given to you. He gave us a new identity on the basis of his grace, not our performance. Think about the family that you were born into. You did nothing. You achieved nothing. You contributed nothing to the family that you were born into. You inherited that name because of no work on your own. I was born as a Cogdell, and I did nothing to earn that. And you and I, we did nothing. We contributed nothing to belong to the family of God. Christ did the work. We received the blessings. So praise God for the new identity that he gives us. Praise Jesus as the only means by which that identity happens, and praise the Spirit as the one who brings that alive in us. Last week, you'll remember, we talked about how we are better together, that the Christian life was never intended to be carried out alone. We need each other, but neither is our faith to be lived out in a vacuum, isolated from the rest of the world. If you read Jesus' prayer in John 17, this is his longest recorded prayer in all of Scripture. We know it as Jesus' high priestly prayer, and in this prayer, we see that God the Father has left us in this broken world for a reason. Jesus prays in John 17, verse 15, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. Have you ever wondered why when we put our faith in Christ and we receive salvation, why doesn't God just take us to be with him right away? Why don't we just go and spend eternity with him right away? Why are we still here in this sin-stained world? This prayer tells us why. We have a mission. We have a purpose to fulfill. He goes on, they are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is true. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. Verse 20, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me, and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. You see, your new identity gives you a new mission and a new purpose in life. 
The reason that you are here on this earth is to glorify God and to share the hope of the gospel and the message of Jesus with the people around you. At Bachelor Creek, our mission is this, making and growing disciples of Jesus. That's why we're here. That's what we do, to make and to grow disciples of Jesus. So Peter begins by saying, this is your new identity. And then he moves, secondly, here is your different lifestyle. Here's the life that you are to live. He writes in verse 11, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may sear good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. We can summarize Peter's words this way. You've been made different, now live differently. You have been given a new identity. You have been made different, now live a distinct and holy life. If you'll notice here, verses 11 and 12 explain two halves of the Christian life. And I've noticed that many Christians do one or the other well, but not both. So, There are some Christians who follow Peter's instructions to abstain from sinful desires. There are Christians who are intentional about fighting against sin, but they do so isolated away from the world. They kind of get into their little holy huddles away from the world. They're not engaging in culture, but they're fighting against sin. And then you have other cultures, you have other Christians in our culture who are engaging with outsiders, right? They're involved in culture, but, but their life looks no different from the world. They're participating in sin. They're, they're living a sinful lifestyle. And so when verse 12 says, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. If you are fighting against sin and abstaining from sinful desires, but you're doing so disconnected from the world, then then people aren't going to be able to see your good deeds. They're not going to glorify God because they can't see. They can't see you. And on the other hand, if you are engaging in culture, but you are not abstaining from from sinful desires, then they're not going to be able to see your good deeds. They're not going to be able to glorify God because your life looks no different from theirs. But there's no distinction. You see, either half without the other hinders God's gospel work. Your actions either enhance or inhibit a person's view of Jesus. So are your actions building bridges to Jesus, or are your actions building fences to keep people from Jesus? The key here is finding the balance, where you're living radically different lives among the pagans in order to display the gospel. He says, Live such good lives among the pagans, okay? Not among just your little holy Christian huddle, but but live good lives among outsiders, among people that think differently than you, among people that believe differently than you in order to display the gospel. This means that, that we ought to know people and have friends who aren't believers. We ought to listen to them and learn from them. We ought to be present where they are while at the same time living radically different lives from them as we display Jesus as the true and better in the everyday stuff of life. Remember, Jesus prayed not that we would be taken out of the world, 
We are to be in the world, but we are not of the world. Over the last couple of years, I've studied the Desert Fathers. And in church history, the Desert Fathers were these men and women who in the first five or six centuries of the church would escape from their communities and they would go out and literally live in the desert, some of them for decades upon decades, in order to devote their lives fully to God. And they would live these minimalistic, simplistic lives. And they would spend their days praying, they would spend their days fasting and just trying to commune with God as deeply as possible. And, and their writings are profound and there's so much that we can learn from, from their devotion to God. But, but as I've studied these men and women, what stood out to me is that they weren't living on mission. They, they would fight against sin in their life, but they would do so isolated from the very people that God calls us to reach. They weren't salt and light in their communities. In fact, they left their communities. And, and the call on our lives is to display the gospel in our culture. And that means that we engage with others. We do so by living distinct lives from the culture. Remember, we are in the world, but we are not of the world. So Peter shares our new identity. He instructs us to live different lives Thirdly, we see the result, and that is the gospel's transforming impact. We see the transforming impact of the gospel. Again, verse 12 says that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. That they may see your good deeds. So when pagans, these are just people who don't know God, when they see your actions, when they see you living out the gospel, what's their response? They glorify God. They're transformed. That is the goal. That is the ultimate result. See, we don't live out the gospel so that we can feel morally superior to other people. We don't live out the gospel so that God will love us more than he already does. We do it because we have been called out of the darkness into God's marvelous light, and we want to see other people called out of the darkness too. Their lives are changed, not just because the gospel was preached, but because it was also lived out. And that is the power of the gospel in our actions. St. Francis famously said, preach the gospel. If necessary, use words. Have you ever heard someone say, you may be the only Jesus someone ever sees? Your life, your example may be the only representation of Jesus that someone ever sees. And so when people look at your life, what are they seeing? Well, what would people determine about you based only on your actions? Do your actions confirm or deny what you claim to believe? So as we wrap up our time together, I just want to give you three quick pieces of application. First, show it, don't just say it. Show it, don't just say it. The message of Jesus is most effective when people see it in action. We have multiple generations of people in our culture today who are jaded and they are cynical because they are sick and tired of seeing people say one thing and then do something completely different. People want real. People want authenticity. So yes, use words as you share the hope of Jesus. 
but make sure that your life supports the message that you're sharing. When he was campaigning for president in 1988, George H.W. Bush famously said, read my lips, no new taxes. It was the most memorable line from his speech, and it was honestly one that helped secure his victory. But those same words would come back to haunt him when he was running for re-election in 1992. You see, Bush was unable to keep his campaign promise. In 1990, he signed a law that raised multiple taxes. His mouth said one thing, but his actions showed something else. Most people agree that Bush would have easily won re-election if not for that one failed promise. In fact, Republican pollster Richard Worthlin, he called the promise the six most destructive words in the history of presidential politics. Show it. Don't just say it. Second, live holy. Holiness matters. Living distinct lives matters. Don't be a stumbling block for someone else. If people are going to trip and fall, if someone's going to trip and fall and stumble, make sure that they're stumbling over Jesus. Make sure that they're stumbling over Jesus and his claims and his message, not your lifestyle. Don't be the reason that someone walks away from Christ. And third, get out of your bubble. Engage with outsiders. What I think is awesome is that there are some of you who are here today because someone else invited you. And you accepted that invitation, not just because they asked you with their words, but because you saw something distinct and attractive in their lifestyle. They they were genuine. You could tell that their faith was real. You, You saw the way that they loved their spouse. You watched the way that they coached their son's Little League team with passion and with integrity. You witnessed them serve in the community without expecting anything in return. But maybe for you, it was also a little closer to home. The friend who invited you was a coworker or a neighbor, and you have seen their faith in action. They helped you when you needed it the most. They brought you a meal when you weren't feeling well. They checked in with you when you were recovering from surgery. They let you borrow a car when yours broke down. You see, when we get out of our bubble and engage with others, when our lives match our words, then people are able to see Jesus for who he really is. And as you live out the gospel, remember, Jesus is the hero. You live out, your, you live out the gospel in your actions so that people can see Jesus, not you. Jesus saves. Jesus redeems. Jesus heals. Jesus transforms lives, not you. Peter says, live such good lives among the pagans that though they see our good deeds, they what? They glorify God. They glorify God, not you. So so, so check yourself. Make sure that you're keeping it all about Jesus in his kingdom, not you. And as we display the gospel through our actions, we watch and see as God transforms lives. Let's pray together. 
God, we thank you that the radical, life-transforming message of the gospel changes our hearts, it changes our minds, it changes the way that we act. And God, I pray that we would live holy and distinct lives as we engage the world around us, our neighbors and, and our coworkers and the people in our community. And I pray, God, that when they see us, they see Jesus. God, not a single one of us is perfect. And there are going to be times where we fail, where we make mistakes, we put our foot in our mouth. And we thank you, God, for the forgiveness and the grace that you show to us. But I pray, Father, that, that our desire to see more and more people called out of darkness and into your light would be the motivating factor to help us to live holy lives for you. God, thank you for changing our hearts. Thank you for changing our lives. God, I pray that people would see us. They would see there's something different. There, there's, something, there's something appealing about our lives. And as we live out the hope of Jesus, more and more people, would be brought into your light so that you get the glory. God, that is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.